0: Many adults may not be aware that simply being over 50 puts them at increased risk for shingles. Help prevent shingles in patients over 50 with Shingrix. Shingrix is indicated for the prevention of herpes zoster (HZ) or shingles in adults 50 years of age or older. Consult a product monograph at gsk.ca/shingrix/pm for contraindications, warnings and precautions, adverse reactions, interactions, dosing and administration information. To request a product monograph or to report an adverse event, please call 1-800-387-7374. Learn more at thinkshingrix.ca.
1: This episode is brought to you by Audi Canada. The Canadian Medical Association has partnered with Audi Canada to offer CMA members preferred incentive on select vehicle models. Purchase any new qualifying Audi model and receive an additional cash incentive based on the purchase type. Details of the incentive program can be found at audiprofessional.ca. Explore the full line of vehicles available to suit your lifestyle. The Audi driving experience is like no other. Roughly 20% of Canadians will meet criteria for alcohol use disorder at some point in their lives. Fewer than a third of those people will ever receive addiction treatment, and only a small group will receive medications meant to help reduce alcohol consumption. Roughly half a percent of Canadians with alcohol use disorder will end up using anti-craving medications. Now, Anti-craving medications are, in fact, a good option for primary care physicians to keep in mind for patients with moderate to severe alcohol use disorder. I'm Dr. Dorian Deschauer, Deputy Editor for the Canadian Medical Association Journal. Today, I'm talking to Dr. John Mong and Dr. Paxton Bach. They're joining me today to talk about anti-craving medication for alcohol use disorder. They co-authored a practice article published in CMAJ, along with their colleague, Dr. Keith Ahmed. I've reached them in Vancouver and Ottawa. Welcome. Hi there. Hi, thanks, Dorian. So to begin with, can you each tell us about yourselves?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So first off, thank you so much for having us on. It's it's really um, an exciting thing to be able to talk about. I'm John. I'm a general internist working at the Ottawa Hospital with a clinical focus in addiction medicine. I also work with the Substance Use Program Consult Team. And I'm doing my master's in quality improvement in patient safety through the University of Toronto's IHPME. I really became interested in addiction medicine, uh, you know, during my training in internal medicine, because so often we would see patients admitted to the CTU with substance use issues. And while we could take care of their acute issue, whether it was osteomyelitis or alcohol withdrawal or alcohol induced pancreatitis it often felt a bit like we were putting a band-aid on the solution and not really helping them with their underlying substance use issue. And that sort of led me to get interested into into this area of medicine. And um, I think it's been such a useful set of skills to have. And I'm really excited to be talking about it today.
1: Excellent.
2: Uh, yeah, th- thanks, thanks, Dorian, and, and thanks very much for inviting us to be on the podcast today. Uh, my name is Paxton Bach. I'm a clinical assistant professor at the University of British Columbia here in Vancouver, and I'm in a general interest and addiction position working at Saint Paul's Hospital in downtown Vancouver. I also, uh, in, in addition to that, I'm the program director for the BC Center on Substance Use a Clinical Addiction Medicine Fellowship, and um, in that role, I get to to work with a lot of trainees and. Um, teach about the principles of addiction medicine, which is an area that I, I am also very passionate about. I like John, I'm a general internist and was really struck by um, my inability to, to help a lot of the patients on CTU with some of the underlying uh, drivers of, of, of many of the presentations and um, that's what led me um, to explore this area of medicine. And I, I would just echo John, it dovetails very well with my skill set as a general internist and it's a really satisfying area of medicine to, to practice in but also to teach in because I think it's it's underappreciated how how much evidence and how many tools we do have to help people um, dealing with substance use
1: disorders. Thanks for that introduction. Actually, it does give me some context as to how you're seeing the world and seeing the problem of, of alcohol use it's actually quite far down it's its trajectory by the time people are already affected in hospital so john can you talk to listeners who are working in primary care who might just want to know how do i know if the person in front of me has an alcohol use disorder absolutely and i think that's uh, that's an excellent question
0: You know, whenever I talk with trainees or even colleagues about what constitutes alcohol use disorder, you know, invariably someone asks, well, what about that time I I got drunk and blacked out um, in in undergrads? I mean, I have an alcohol use disorder. Um, And and at the end of the day, it boils down to, sure, there are the diagnostic criteria in the DSM-5, but the way that um, the thing that really separates an alcohol use disorder from uh, using alcohol uh more generally speaking are are something that we tend to think of as the four c's and uh, those stand for cravings compulsions control and consequences and so when you break it down uh, essentially those are the features which will separate someone with any sort of substance use disorder alcohol included from again someone who simply uses the substance and so uh, breaking it down a bit more craving is essentially So it's almost like a physical pain, like hunger that someone has um, to to use a substance. And compulsions are, they're like an overpowering urge um, to use that substance. Consequences, of course, are when someone continues to use a substance or has negative consequences as a result of their use. And control is uh, when patients and people feel like, they no longer have that ability to moderate or temper how much they use and it's really those four c's that i keep in mind when you know discussing alcohol use um with patients and and whether or not you know a patient's use pattern fits more into a disorder or simply um, just uh, occasional
1: regular use that's really helpful to moving beyond just a straight counting um, approach to alcohol intake. So you're, you're wanting to look at at the bigger picture in a person's life. Paxton, so can you help us understand then, I guess what we're talking about now is the conversion of of evidence-based medicine into practice. Because when we're talking about anti-craving drugs, we're talking about uh, uh, people who have moderate to severe alcohol use disorder. How do you differentiate that group from people with a milder addiction who might not necessarily benefit from from the anti-craving drugs.
2: I think you set it really nicely there that we do have criteria to make these designations through the DSM but as you alluded to you know um, treating the patient in front of you is not necessarily that um, black and white and I think that it's important to remember that people will fluctuate but may potentially fluctuate along that spectrum at different points in their life as well so what may at one point meet criteria for severe alcohol use disorder may at another point not, not necessarily do so. So I think that for me, at least, I move a little bit beyond the DSM criteria at this point, and I just have a conversation with the patient. And I think that the way that this was framed to me once by, by somebody I work with was really approaching these questions and these conversations with curiosity. Um, because I think there remains a fair amount of stigma in Canada around people with substance use disorders, alcohol included. And so there can be some reticence, I think, uh, on the, the side of a patient to really open up and discuss their alcohol use. So approaching it um, with curiosity in a non-judgmental way, I think, is is really an important theme that's going to translate through all the message we talk about today. For me, the pieces that I really focus on that help me um, make this distinction um, between mild to more moderate or severe alcohol use disorders, as well as to who might benefit from um, more intensive treatment with things like pharmacotherapy, really comes down to, as John mentioned, those four C's. In particular, um, how much success they've had uh, in the past using other uh, approaches to trying to cut back. Um, You know, many people may at some point of their uh life accessed some psychosocial uh supports for their uh, alcohol use disorder or maybe have just tried to cut back on their own and so that i think is a really helpful um question to frame where somebody's at um as well as as the consequences they're experiencing and and somebody who's experiencing very significant health or social or financial consequences um, related to their alcohol use that's i think a real red flag Um, that they may be progressing further along that spectrum. But really what it comes down to, I think, is is just making sure patients are aware of their options and and can kind of choose from from a menu of things, be that pharmacotherapy or psychosocial resources um, to to help them meet whatever their goals are at that moment in time.
1: So actually that's really interesting. If we're talking about a spectrum, um, I'm imagining step therapy and I'm imagining uh, that the anti-craving drugs are gonna be further down that spectrum. But I guess before we start walking through the spectrum, my question would be: Would you ever start almost like the first thing you do, introducing an anti-craving drug, uh, say simultaneously with other interventions, or would you always make that a step a step conversation?
0: You know, it's interesting that you bring up the idea of a of a sort of tier or step. You know, try the psychosocial interventions first before, you know, quote unquote, progressing to pharmacotherapy, and. I- I think that, again, because these medications haven't been so well used or uh, well known, we tend to think of them as, you know, the quote unquote next step or the big guns. Whereas really, they've got great evidence um, to be used in conjunction with or even uh, solely, um, you know, as as the first line therapy when it comes to things like naltrexone, acamprosate. And I think to reiterate what Paxton was saying is that These are one of many tools that, you know, we as physicians have in our back pocket uh, when it comes to helping patients meet their goals. And so I I think it's really being able to know what options are available and to be able to have a a conversation with each patient about what they want, what they think will work for them and, um, you know, what they eventually want to, you know, what their goals are. Uh, in terms of what uh, treatment uh, they eventually start you know i i think it, it would be entirely reasonable to offer a patient uh, pharmacotherapy in conjunction with psychosocial interventions or it would be entirely reasonable for a patient to you know have that conversation about pharmacotherapy and decide that uh, they don't want it uh, initially and it would be again entirely reasonable for a patient to say you know i only want uh, an and I, I don't you know, really want to join a group or go to therapy. And, um, you know, I think it's important that we have these um, options available because without them, we're not doing the best thing that we can for our
1: patients. Actually, what I'm hearing reminds me a lot about psychiatric practice. And quite honestly, as a psychiatrist, I look very much to a person's personal preference uh, when we're talking about medications or or a menu of of interventions. So it, I guess it, doesn't, it's, it shouldn't be a surprise that we could think the same way about alcohol interventions. So along that conversation, have either of you figured out a good way to start that sensitive topic, to start moving the conversation toward alcohol use, and say, in a primary care setting?
2: So I guess I should say, for full disclosure, Dorian, that I am an addiction medicine specialist and I work primarily in an inpatient setting or in a a specialty clinic so um, that's not an environment that that I tend to operate in but I what I what I often talk about with um, with providers is two things it's it's really about one I think normalizing this uh, conversation as a part of uh, a part of general primary care Um, I think we talk to people people are generally fairly used to talking about things like smoking um, I think at this point, and so just really normalizing this conversation is just just a part of a conversation about somebody's habits and lifestyle, and making it part of your routine care. One of the one of the documents that um, we did re- that that I will reference often, at least in, in my teaching, is the British Columbia Centre on Substance Use um, Guidelines for the Management of High Risk Drinking and Alcohol Use Disorder, which is a, a, a quite a lengthy. Um, guideline that came out just over a year ago now in BC and really um, contains a lot of really helpful details in terms of how to manage these situations. I should also mention that it's it's currently being translated into a national guideline and that's a project that's underway. But one of the tools that it highlights as 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 worth incorporating into general primary care is is screening for alcohol use disorder. Um, And it recommends screening annually just using something called the single alcohol screening question, um, which is simply asking somebody, in the past year, have you consumed more than three drinks for a woman and four drinks or four drinks for a man? which uh, as you mentioned earlier, I think I, I, I shy away sometimes from being too um, linear in my thinking around how many drinks is okay or not okay. But it is a very helpful screening question, I think, to broach this subject and allow you to begin to explore it a little bit more, again, with curiosity, without judgment, just talking to somebody about about their health in general and and how alcohol fits into their life.
1: How do you tease out cravings in that conversation?
2: Yeah, I mean, I. Would start by by simply asking something I mean, I think many people do clearly identify their cravings as such, but um if I can take a step back, I think that one of the really important questions that I find helpful in guiding treatment for any substance use disorder at all is asking somebody why they use their substance of choice, just why, um, and letting them go wherever they want to take that question. And it can be incredibly illuminating. Some people, don't really know how to answer and they'll just they'll, they may just say that they do but a lot of people have a lot of insight into why they use and it may be that they clearly identify very significant cravings um or an inability to 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 get drinking or or other substance out of their mind It may be very different a lot of people will tell you they drink because of anxiety or because it's part of their routine or out of boredom you know people will have many um answers to that question that I think can really help um Guide the conversation further and really help me as the clinician get a sense of what treatments I think I, I think may be worth exploring a little bit further with them, keeping kind of that that why right at the front of the conversation.
1: Well, I, I kind of like that approach, and I, I again I'm gonna I'm, I'm gonna ask if I, if I could about a little follow up here. Um, so if you if you're trying if you're hearing from somebody that they're feeling bored, that they're drinking because of boredom, or that they're drinking because of anxiety. Are there specifics that you're listening to will help guide your choice to to move toward anti craving medication?
2: Uh, that that's a really excellent question, Dorian, and something that's actually um, we we I talk about this a lot um, because um, I would like to think that that is true. Um, I think that you know we we conceptualize alcohol use disorder as one entity, but I think that that's not really. Um, it's doing a disservice to our patients. It's a, you know it's a very heterogeneous. Um, condition or or, um, disorder. um, And people do drink for very different reasons, with very different patterns uh, at very different times in their life. So I often think about that heterogeneity and whether we can um, gain a better understanding of what treatments might work for somebody based on those patterns. That being said, I don't think we really have the evidence yet to support that. Um, So it's something that's certainly in my mind, but I, I tend to, uh, and moving into a little bit about medication specifically at this point, I do tend to try and stick with our first-line medications for most patients as our first options, um, just because they are the be- They do have the best evidence supporting them, they are best tolerated, um, and they tend to be more effective. So while I, I, I hope that we gain that ability to be granular um, in that sort of way, uh, at some point in the future, I'm not quite sure that um, we have the evidence to support that yet at least.
1: So I'm hearing that there's quite a lot of non-specificity in both the language that people use to describe their drinking, and and also in in the language that we use around um, medications. In other words, what type of language would get somebody to be on medications? Would their language change as they start to describe that feeling when they're taking the medication?
2: Um, yeah, I, I would agree with that. I, I you know I think that everyone um, everyone has. Unique experiences with alcohol or their substance of choice, and again, I am endlessly surprised by by patients and, and what what may work for for one or or may not work for another. So I try not to come in with any uh, preconceived notions. Um, the nice thing about these medications, um, as we've mentioned in this article, is they're 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 generally quite well tolerated, um, and you can get a sense of their effectiveness quite quickly. So. Um, I, I, I work with patients to you know when when the decision is made to try a medication, I'll work with a patient. We'll pick one and start it. Um, and we'll go from there. And I'm happy to to rotate through as many medications as needed in conjunction with other supports to 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 find a combination that works.
1: Well, since we're talking about medications, why don't we move on to the question of what anti-craving medications are and how they work physiologically?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, this is the part that sort of tickles my fancy as an, as an internist, the pharmacology, and I just find it absolutely fascinating. Uh, so anti-craving medications, they're a group of medications similar to how with an antihypertensive, you've got ACE inhibitors, beta blockers and, and all of that. So uh, the two first line agents um, for uh, alcohol use disorder and anti-craving medications are naltrexone and acamprosate. And uh, naltrexone, um, you might say, hey, wait a second, that sounds a bit like naloxone. That's an opioid uh, blocker. How does that work in alcohol use disorder? And, and you're, you're right, naltrexone is similar to naloxone in that it's a, um, an opioid blocker. And the way that it works, very interestingly, is that uh, it blocks the effect of endogenous opioids uh, in our limbic system, in our reward pathway. And in patients with alcohol use disorder, they have an outsized, a higher than normal response of opioid endogenous opioid release to using alcohol. And the thought is by providing naltrexone, you can block um, that uh, reward pathway. And so by the principles of operant conditioning, um, when patients uh, with alcohol use disorder who are on naltrexone use alcohol, they don't get that same pleasurable effect. And so there's less of a drive or a desire to use alcohol. Acamprosate, the mechanism of action is less well known, but it's thought to modulate the um, GABA and NMDA receptors, and it can help to mitigate some of the subacute withdrawal symptoms. So withdrawal symptoms that, you know, last maybe weeks to months after cessation of alcohol. And uh, again, just going back to that idea of you know no two patients are the same and and alcohol use disorder people use alcohol for very different reasons it's a very heterogeneous um disorder um a, as it turns out now trexone um is is really quite good for patients who want to reduce uh, their heavy drinking days in fact it has a number needed to treat of 12 to reduce heavy drinking days uh, but it's also pretty good for helping patients maintain um, cessation from alcohol. It's got a number needed to treat of 20. Um, And acamprosate's a bit different. It uh, only helps for patients who wish to achieve cessation from alcohol, at which point it has a number needed to treat of 12. And, you know, as an internist, these numbers are ridiculously great, right? You know, I'm used to seeing NMTs of 30, 40, 50. So when I first learned about these meds and, you know, that they've got an NMT of 12 to 20, you know, it's it's almost criminal how, how underutilized they are. And, you know, they, they have very direct pharmacologic, um, mechanisms of action and, uh, they're evidence-based and they work.
1: So, okay. Looking at the two, let's just, let's just start with naltrexone and acamprosate and say, again, think you're in a primary care office and you're having to think, okay, which one should I try? Which one should I prescribe first? Which is safer? Are there anything special things I should know about one or the other uh, uh, and prescribing?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I think it comes down to the individual patient, um, any uh, specific uh, co-occurring medical conditions and what other medications are on. So the first question I tend to ask myself is, uh, what's the patient's goal? If the patient wishes to achieve alcohol cessation and maintain alcohol cessation, then I'd be leaning towards a acamprosate as opposed to naltrexone simply because uh, the evidence is better for maintaining cessation. That being said, there's a whole host of other factors. Acamprosate is dosed three times a day and, and of course, you know, it's, it's tough to even remember to take a, a medication once a day, uh, you know, just speaking from personal experience. Um, so three times a day can, can be a bit tougher for patients to remember. Uh, naltrexone conversely is once a day and so it's just a bit easier for patients to uh, remember to take and it can just help um, if patients you know are out of the house quite a bit or if um, they don't have a very regular schedule then maybe naltrexone might be a better choice from a a dosing perspective in terms of contraindications and, and side effects they're a bit different as well so naltrexone again going back to that idea that it works similarly to naloxone If patients are on opioids or, you know, and that includes uh, opioid agonist therapy like methadone or suboxone, uh, then naltrexone is uh, contraindicated because it will uh, inhibit or or stop uh, the opioids from working. So if someone uh, is also prescribed opioids of any kind, then naltrexone is is out the window, unfortunately. And uh, naltrexone is also contraindicated if there's uh, severe hepatitis or um, liver disease. There's no hard and fast cutoff, but uh, you know, probably a meld of 15, so end liver disease, um, you know, you, you don't wanna be using naltrexone in that case. Or if they have uh, AST or ALT, more than two times the upper limit of normal. Uh, so those are also contraindications to naltrexone. Uh, in comparison, acamprosate, it uh, can be used even in in liver failure, but it's contraindicated when the creatinine clearance is lower, and you just have to dose suggest in case the creatinine clearance is uh, less than 50, and you can't use it if the creatinine clearance is, is less than 30. Um, as Paxson was saying earlier, both meds are pretty well tolerated. Uh, side effects tend to be pretty transient for uh, naltrexone, uh, some fatigue, uh, sometimes a bit of GI upset, but again. Uh, quite transient and very well tolerated. And uh, similarly for acamprosate, uh, the major side effect is is GI upset, but again, transient and very well tolerated. And so, you know, the magnitude of the potential benefits, I think really quite strongly outweighs any, you know, minimal side effects that might uh, might arise.
1: Now, can I ask you um, about availability? And I, I recall not long ago, there was a shortage in Canada of um, a is that still happening now? Or like, like in other words, we're talking about a but can people actually get it in Canada right now?
0: Thankfully, yes. Uh, I believe the shortage ended in July of last year. But you're right; there was a, uh, a shortage uh, for a while with a campersate. But as of right now, uh, both medications are available,
1: and I believe covered under most provincial programs.
0: I believe so. In Ontario, they are certainly covered under the L.U. codes. Uh, I wouldn't know for sure about the other provinces.
1: Paxton, any any uh, uh, full coverage in British Columbia?
2: They they are covered. They are covered uh, in British Columbia under something called a collaborative prescriber agreement. So yes, both of those are are, are also available in in our province.
1: And we've talked a little bit about starting the medications, introduced the two, the best known ones, naltrexan and acamprosate. In your article, you mentioned topiramate and gabapentin, which we don't have time really to go into here. And I think people who are more interested can look at at your article and and further readings. But I wanna ask you both actually about the the flip side to starting a medication. And that is, how do you know it's time to stop um, a medication?
2: That's another excellent question, dorian. and obviously, and one of the first questions that comes up from patients where we are initiating these medications, I typically suggest um you know starting one of these medications, and um as I mentioned earlier, quite quickly, you should be able to establish whether they're achieving any benefit or or not from medication. so usually, I'll try and see them back in one to two weeks uh, and and but if by a month into a good trial of medication, they're not seeing any benefit. I would be looking at, at alternative options. If they are seeing a benefit, that that becomes the question um, in terms of how long do we carry on uh, down this road? And it it really varies. And I, I I try to to put it as much as possible to the patient. Generally, you know, 12 weeks is the most typical duration that these medications are studied. So we tend to not have a great deal of data beyond that that point in time. So I usually Recommend that we that we try medication for a minimum of three months um, if they're achieving some benefit, and then we sit down and we reassess. And if somebody feels if they're really obtaining a lot of benefit and it's really helpful and they're they're meeting their goals and they're feeling good, um, and they want to carry on, that's fine. Um, then we can carry it on. As as John mentioned, they're very well tolerated medications, and I'm happy to keep going with them for as long as they feel um, they're they're. We're helping them. Similarly, if somebody at three months decides that they'd like to stop and kind of see how things go, I'm supportive of that as well. Um, and we'll take it a day at a time and see how things go. And if they do stop and they find that craving come back, well, then I'm more than happy to restart the medications and um, carry on for, for, for a period of time beyond that. But that's usually my suggestion, is, and it's within our BC guidelines as well, It's three to six months as our initial trial, and then, and then from there. Um, you can reassess and make that decision collaboratively with your patient.
1: And just out of curiosity, um, a lot of psychiatric drugs, as you know, have withdrawal and rebound symptoms if you stop them all of a sudden, especially if you've been taking, you know, antidepressants for a while. Um, Has anything like that been described with the anti-craving drugs?
2: No one of the one of the fortunate things about these medications is that really um, there's not uh, starting and stopping them is is quite straightforward at least with these first line medications, um, naltrexone and acamprosate. So um, it's le- not something we have to worry about as much with these medications, which is again why they're such um, helpful tools and really quite easy to incorporate into your practice.
1: That kind of leads me to the next question. Uh, I know that John has expressed very strongly um, his sense that the that the anti-craving drugs are underused in medical practice. So I wonder if we could put this sort of final section of our discussion around um, how anti-craving medications have been received, both by medical experts and by consumers.
0: I think there has been quite a bit of interest uh, from both sides about um, these anti-craving medications, which, again, is not to say that they're a magic bullet or a panacea. Uh, to help patients with alcohol use disorder, but they are a valuable tool in our toolbox. And, you know, anytime that there's something that could potentially help patients, I think it's, and especially because there is robust evidence that they help, you know, I think there's going to be interest certainly, you know, locally within the Ottawa hospital, um, you know, initiatives to improve their use have been, uh, very warmly received. And, uh, you know, a lot of patients, uh, are interested in it because you know, some patients uh, aren't necessarily interested in the psychosocial, non-pharmatologic interventions, um, and some are interested in uh, a medication that will help them. Um, and of course, some aren't. And, and that's totally valid as well. But, you know, again, I, I think there's been a lot of interest in these medications and, and their use, I think, should be increased. Their knowledge and how to use them should be more
2: widely disseminated. And I, I would just echo that. I think from a patient perspective, people are just really um, happy to 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 have to be provided with options, um, especially ones that they may not have tried to access in the past for people who, who this is not their first uh, attempt at this. And I think from a provider perspective, you know I think that in medicine in general, we tend to um, shy away from questions or conditions where we don't feel as if we are very well equipped to deal with them. Um, I think that, you know, uh, it's pretty natural instinct for clinicians in any specialty to gravitate towards problems that they feel that they can address. And so providing providers with tools in their toolkit, as John mentioned, giving people um, options that they can employ when they run into these situations. I think that it's really, really reaffirming and really um, helps encourage providers to ask these questions and kind of go down this pathway with patients. Uh, it's much more satisfying to have these conversations when you feel as if you are equipped to provide them with some, some help or some answers. And so uh, I think that um, the feedback that I get is almost universally positive from both uh, patients and providers alike.
1: Thank you for joining me today. Thank you very much for having us. It was a pleasure.
2: Yes, thank you for having us and thank you for bringing us on the show um, to talk about something that that obviously we feel pretty strongly about it was a, it was a pleasure to share conversation with you
1: i've been speaking with dr john mong and dr paxton bach dr mong is a general internist working at the ottawa hospital with a clinical focus in addiction medicine dr bach is a clinical assistant professor at the department of medicine at ubc and a general internist and addiction specialist at saint paul's hospital in vancouver bc to read the article they co-authored along with Dr. Keith Ahmed, visit cmaj.ca. Also, don't forget to subscribe to CMAJ Podcasts on SoundCloud or a podcast app, and let us know how we're doing by leaving a rating. I'm Dr. Dorian Deschauer, Deputy Editor for CMAJ. Thank you for listening.